Morning, everybody. Morning. Invite our children up through third grade to uh, Children's Church. Your um, well-dressed teacher is meeting you at the back door. He, he's got a vest and everything. I'm very impressed. Um, before we begin, I just wanted to ask a question. How's Bible reading going? We're reading through the Bible in a year. By my calculations, many of you are now hitting Leviticus and Numbers. Yep, <laughs> I calculated it correctly. And this is usually the point where people will give up. Because you get into Leviticus and you get these strange laws and you're going, I don't know what to do with this. How am I supposed to interpret these things? Um, or you get to Numbers and you hit three chapters of genealogies and you go, I'm falling asleep. So if I can just offer a little advice to help you get through this part. When you're going through Leviticus, when you're going through the law, um, don't look for you in there. It's not about you. What that's about is this, it's referring to purity and separation and holiness. And so um, if you need help with that, you can kind of flip forward and take a look at Hebrews and understand it a little bit better. See where that, that, the line of that's going. How on earth do you read a genealogy that's a chapter and a half long? Especially when most of the names that are in that genealogy will never appear in the Bible again. Do you ever read that and you get guilty because, oh my gosh, my mind wandered. I don't even remember what I just read for the last three verses. It's okay. <laughs> Those are not supposed to be these rich, deep, meaningful encounters with God when you read that, that some guy begat somebody else. Um, instead, let your mind wander. Go ahead and, and read it, but take a step back and say, well, what is this showing? What that's showing is this is God's people. This is the people that God redeemed out of Israel, led through the wilderness faithfully for 40 years. And the repetition and the monotony of it is supposed to be there. It's supposed to teach you this is how many, and God didn't miss one of them. So that's how you can get through those parts of Numbers and Leviticus is, is just take a step back a little bit. Um, don't look for practical applications, especially in the law. Um, if you get a scab, don't pick at it or, you know, isolate yourself for seven days. That was supposed to be something else. So that's just my little helpful, hopefully, advice. Um, before we begin with the scripture, let's, let's uh, open in the word of prayer. Lord Jesus, it is uh, precious to trust you. And uh, Lord, uh, we have proven you over and over. We have tested and shown your goodness repeatedly uh, because you are faithful to your people. And Lord, it is good to trust in your promise because your promise stands sure for us. So, uh, Lord, I just am so grateful for these uh, songs that we get to sing to remind us of the truth of who you are and how you have steadfastly committed yourself to your people, and you will see us through to the end. Um, Lord, we persevere because you persevere, and we're so grateful for that. Thank you for your goodness to us, your people, and to your church. And, Lord, to that end, we want to pray for LifeSpring Community Church in Spring Grove, uh, Illinois, this morning, I pray that as Pastor Cabot's traveling, that um, whoever is preaching this morning would be filled with a measure of your spirit to bring the word of God to them so that they might grow in holiness, so that they might reach Spring Grove with the gospel of Jesus Christ and do what it is that you have called them to do in that community. Um, we are grateful for that church and for the witness of your faithfulness to them. We pray that you would continue to grow them. And Lord, I pray for all of us, um, Lord, as we have as a congregation endeavored to read your word, to devote ourselves to studying it, Lord Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the page for us and show us Jesus on every page of the Bible. Help us to see your promise 
repeatedly coming through the scriptures, repeatedly throughout history being verified as true and solid. And Lord, I pray that our Bible study would not fill us only with knowledge, but would sink deep into our heart as well. And Lord, we pray that same thing for the scripture we're about to study together now. Uh, Lord, would you apply it to our hearts in a, in a real and a tangible way? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So everything I read and looked at this week in preparation for this, this parable said this is the most difficult parable of all of Jesus' parables. Um, and if you were paying attention when Jim read it, you know why. <laughs> and so you're probably like I was. I can't wait to get to this because I've got to figure this thing out. Um, actually, it, it, once we get the parable in the context, it really begins to make a lot of sense. And so um, I'm not going to be clever and come up with some way to interpret it. We're just going to let Jesus explain it. And he, he makes it clear for us. He really does. Um, so what we're going to do is as we look at this section, which the first part is the parable that he tells, that's really shrewdness illustrated. That's what's going on there is he's illustrating what shrewdness is. And then verses 8 and 9, where he comments on it, he redeems shrewdness. He, he brings it back to where it should be. And then finally, he asks the question, who is your master? How, how do you deal with this, this shrewdness? How do you apply it well? So he asks, who's the master? So shrewdness illustrated, shrewdness redeemed, and then who is your master is where he's going to go. So the, the parable, um, he says to his disciples, so this is... After the dinner party, he's apparently left, and he's walking with his disciples, and he begins to tell them a parable. And this is in a string of parables. It fits in kind of a, a context that he's been speaking in. So you remember verse 14 was the dinner party. He had dinner with some Pharisees. And he healed on the Sabbath, not so much to deal with the Sabbath again, but to illustrate the point people are more important. And he got on him because he said, if your son, if your ox fell in a hole on the Sabbath, you'd go rescue him. But you're getting mad at me for healing this man with dropsy? People are more important than that. That was kind of the theme of chapter 14. Chapter 15 was the prodigal. And if you remember, I said the prodigal was not the son. The prodigal was the father. He was the one that spent lavishly. And so what, what chapter 15 is showing is people are, 14 is people are important. 15 is God delights to save people because people are important. And so now when we get to 16, this first half is he's going to talk about how money fits into that equation. And then next week, we're going to look at Lazarus and the rich man, which really kind of brings that to its ultimate conclusion, its ultimate fulfillment. So that's kind of the context it's in. We're talking about the, the value of people in the middle of all of these parables. So he, he begins with this story. There's a rich man who had a manager, and charges are brought against him because he's wasting the money. The, the manager was, was the ruler of the house. He's not a slave. You can tell he's not a slave because he's going to be dismissed, not executed. He, he has mishandled his job. And so word gets back to the master, hey, your manager, this person you put in charge of the household, he's squandering your money. And so the, the manager calls him and says, turn in an account of your management. In other words, what he says is, I want to review the books. You show me how you've been handling my merchandise. How have you been handling my produce? It's time for you to give an accounting, and then you're out of here. So the manager says to himself, what am I going to do? I, I'm, I, this is going to be taken away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too proud to beg. So what am I going to do? In other words, I can't resort to blue-collar work because I'm just not strong. I'm not cut out for it. I've been a, a manager for so long. Nobody in their right mind is going to hire me for white-collar work because of the, rumor that got, or the word that got out that I mishandled this guy's property. And I'm just too proud to go out and beg for money. 
So he's, he feels the, the bind that he's gotten himself in by mishandling the, the master's money. He says, now what? And then he gets an idea. He, something, he settles an idea. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And so he calls the people who owe the master money. And he says, how much do you owe? Write off part of it. Here's issue a new uh, receipt. What he's doing is he knows he's going to have to present the books to the master. And so since I've already been cooking the books, since I've already been squandering the money, might as well go a little bit further. So he does it again. And, and this time, instead of doing it in favor of himself, he does it in favor of the, the people who owe the money to the master. And he says, how much do you owe? You owe 100? Write down 50. And let's sign that deed and get that in the books. How much do you owe? You owe 100? Do 80. So the reason that he's doing that is he says, what, what will happen is I know that I'm not going to be able to get a job, and I can't do physical labor. So I'm going to make friends now so that when I get fired, I have a place to go to. They're going to remember the kindness I expressed to them in writing off parts of their debt, and they'll welcome me into their house. They'll take care of me. So that's his plan. That's what he's going to do. One of the questions then is, why does the master respond the way he does? The master commends the servant. You go, what? Why would he do that? I thought this was a biblical story, Jesus. You're supposed to, you know, he winds up gnashing teeth and wailing and stuff, right? He says the, the master hears about this, and he says, um, he commends him. He says, he says he's done a good job. So what's going on here? This is really beside the point, but everybody's asking this question. Why did the master respond that way? Why did he have the right to write off part of the debt? The best explanation I've heard so far is what he wrote off, what he told him to scratch off the bill, was his take. So he would loan money out, and the master would get some back, and then he'd take his portion. And so what he's doing is he's scratching off his portion. Don't know for sure. It doesn't really matter because it's not the main point. I kind of doubt it, though, because 50% markup on the oil, you know, that's a pretty big take. The, the wheat was only a, a, marked it down by uh, five, or, um, 5%. No, not 5%. 20%. One-fifth. I knew there was a five involved somewhere. So he marked it down one-fifth. And that seems more reasonable. But half, So anyway, ultimately it doesn't matter. That, that's not the point of the parable. What the point of the parable is, is that the master commends him for this. In other words, he looks at the guy and he says... Now, this is the kind of sharp thinking, this go-getter attitude I've been looking for in you. And you pull it out at the last minute to save your cookies? Why weren't you doing this all along so that I could have made more money? So he commends him for his shrewdness. He commends him for his business acumen, for investing well and trying to redeem this situation before it's too late. So that's the master's thing. Why on earth would Jesus tell this parable? commending somebody who's ripping off his boss. It, I could possibly say at this point, um, cheat on your taxes, steal from your boss, and pay for friends so that when you go to heaven, you'll meet them there. And that's the application. Uh, let's close in prayer. <laughs> Except that's not the application. It feels like it, doesn't it? That, that really isn't the application. And the clue to this, what's going to give us the answer to what Jesus is at here, is verses, the second half of verse 8 and verse 9. So he says, Jesus, he tells the parable and then he comments on it. He says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, when you hear the word shrewd, what do you think? Somebody who's kind of underhanded and devious and shifty and boy, they're you know, a shrewd dealer. That's not really what the word shrewd means. I looked it up. It says, having or showing clever awareness or resourcefulness, especially in practical matters. 
Another way we could say it is wisdom. He, he's, he, it's not neg- necessarily a negative word in the Greek that they're using there for shrewdness. It's, it's this, um, this idea of somebody is being very wise with what's going on. They're paying attention to the situation. They know what's happening. So Jesus says, the sons of this world, those who don't know me, who are outside the, the covenant of God, they're more shrewd. They're more wise in dealing with each other. They know how to manipulate things and make things work. They know how to get things to fit together well. They're more shrewd than the sons of light. The sons of light is referring to God's people. It's used a a couple of times in the Old Testament. The the Essenes at Quarum used it a lot. The the monastic little group that came up with the Dead Sea Scrolls, they they referred to themselves as the sons of light. It's in the New Testament a couple of times. So it's talking about God's people. So what, what he's saying is, look, you have to look to what they're doing And see the shrewdness, understand the way that they're using that, because they're doing it better than we are. So, wait, I'm supposed to look to the world and figure out how they do things? Well, hold on, he's not done yet. He says they are more shrewd in dealing with each other than than the sons of light are. And it's not they're better at cheating each other. It's they understand how to use money to get what they're looking for. And he says then in the second part in verse 9, he says, and I tell you, Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And there's the key. That's that's where Jesus flips this on his head. Notice he does not commend the servant. He doesn't say, boy, you guys should be more like that servant. All he comments on is he says, look at how they deal with each other. They're very wise in, in their matters. They're very careful. They're shrewd. They understand the situation. But he doesn't say what they're doing is right. He simply says... What they're doing is more shrewd, the way they work with each other. So then he tells us, he turns to his disciples and he says, I'm telling you, make friends for yourself with the unrighteous wealth that you have so that when it fails, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. So here's the idea. The unrighteous manager is not put forward as a role model for us. The, the, the master of the house is not put forward as the role model for us or a picture of God. It's simply an illustration of how the world works. They're very careful with how they use their money. The, the manager is using money to get what he needs. He's looking towards the future. He says, I see what's coming. I see the, the handwriting on the wall. I'm going to lose my job. I, I could steal a bunch more money from my master, but I know eventually that's going to give out. Because if I have to live on it and nobody in their right mind is going to hire me after this, then the, man, the money's going to fail. So I have to figure out a better way to do this. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to use my money to win friends. I'll use the money that I have, still have charge over to win friends. And that way when the money fails, when I get kicked out and when the money I've saved up is gone, then I have friends to rely on. So that's the picture that Jesus paints. And he tells us, that we should be as, as wise with our money as they are. Not as unrighteous as they are. He, he continues to refer to this guy as an unrighteous manager. But he says what we should be is as wise as they are. So he tells us, use the money that you have now to gain friends. Spend your resources to gain friends, to make friends. Be engaged with other people. Why? So that when you go to heaven, they will be there to receive you. They'll be there to, to, um, to rejoice with you. Not so that 
you know, have a place to live because you won't have a mansion in heaven or something. They're going to have a, a, actually it's eternal dwellings, it's not mansion, it's skene, which is tents. So you, you don't have to dwell in their tent. It's saying you, when you get to heaven, you want to have friends there waiting for you. His point is the same, that, same thing that he has been saying all along. People are more important. People are more important than the rules of the Sabbath that you Pharisees made up, by the way. He says people are more important than the rules of the Sabbath. Last week he said it's, people are so important, God delights to run out and grab them and bring them in. He's so happy to have them return to him. And now what he's saying is people are more important than money, than possessions. And, and he's talking about money, but he really is meaning much more than just the coins in your pocket. He's talking about all that you have, all your possessions, all that you own. What he's telling you is that people are more important than them. One wise commentator said, heaven is full of friends. You don't go to heaven and, and feel lonely. You don't go, gee, I wish I had somebody to talk to. You go to heaven and you're surrounded by people with similar interests, people who are similarly excited about who God is and what he's done. So when we go to heaven, we go to heaven with friends to be with friends. Friends are greater than money. Money will fail. Didn't Jesus say that? Buy friends so that when the unrighteous money, the unrighteous mammon fails, because it will, you'll have friends. You'll have something that abides beyond this lifetime, something that abides unto eternity, which is friendship and love lasts longer than money. In the meantime, we've got to have money. It's how things work. But it won't, it won't last. It won't satisfy in the long run. So we have to use the money that we have to build relationships, to care for other people. And when your friends get to heaven, they'll welcome you because of your generosity, because you were generous not just with your money, but with the very salvation that you have. You are able to share even, to, even who Jesus Christ is. And so they are delighted when you, when you arrive in heaven because they get to see and celebrate with you. That, that's the picture of this, this uh, parable, is use your money, your possessions, your position wisely to gain more people because we want to have heaven filled with friends, with people, with folks that we know. So if that's the picture that Jesus has given, how do we cultivate that heart of generosity? How do we, how do we handle money that way? Well, ask yourself, who's your master? And that's the last point. He says... One who is faithful with very little is also faithful in much. And one who's dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. So you've been given possessions, money, uh, uh, power, authority, positions, friendships, relationships. Are you going to be faithful with those? That's what you've been entrusted with. Are they yours? Do we own our money? We don't really own our money. So when we ask you to give a tithe, a tenth of a percent, here's the situation. This is what it lines up like. A manager has put you in charge of his goods. And he said, I want you to manage this, the things that I give you. I'll decide how much you get. You manage it well. And um, you get to keep 90% of it. You get to keep 90% of everything that I give you. All I ask is this 10% return that you give that back. Would you sign up for one of those? Somebody comes and says, here's a bunch of money. You keep 90% of it. You give me 10% back. It's like, yeah, I'll take that. That's what he's saying is, is are you going to be faithful with what I've already given you, with your time, with your money, with your energy? 
with your finances. Will you be faithful with that? Because if you will, I'll give you more. You've demonstrated that you're faithful. It's mine to begin with, and I have it bestowed on you. So you, you, you trust me with it. If you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, unrighteous mammon, why is it unrighteous? There's a lot of questions about that. Why, why does he call wealth, why does he call money? Mammon, by the way, is just Aramaic, the transliteration from Aramaic for money. It, it, we tend to think of it as negative, but in Jesus' time, it was just cash. It wasn't good or bad. It was just mammon. Uh, we always talk about evil mammon, and probably because of this, because he calls it unrighteous. So why is it unrighteous? It's unrighteous because it won't fulfill a promise in the end. When you have died and you are laid in a grave, nobody stacks money in with you. It's, it's unrighteous. It's not going anywhere. It, it, it works now, but it can't last eternally. So then how do you get from this idea that I have this unrighteous wealth and it's been entrusted to me, um, how do I make sure that doesn't get into my heart? Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Okay, God, that's, I believe it because Jesus said it. How do I get there? What if I am trusting money? And again, money is more than just cash. It's property, it's position, it's, it's relationship, it's whatever. Those things that you've entrusted me, how do I not serve them but serve you and use them? How do I get to that point? Well, the way Jesus explained it is he pointed to a secular arrangement, didn't he? He said there's this manager in a household. He's not necessarily a godly man, but he's a manager in a household. So I think what we can do is look to some secular ways of doing things now. Um, think long term is the first way to get your heart set on God instead of money. Uh, you know what day traders are? Day traders are people who put money into E-Trade and sit online and watch the stocks go up and down and, and buy and sell on a day-to-day -day basis. Long-term professional investors love day traders because that's where they get all their cheap stocks from. Because generally what happens is day traders watch those, those little fluctuations back and forth and try to react to them. So they tend to buy high and sell low. Oh, this stock is going up, I'm going to buy it. Oh, it's now it's tanking, it's going back down, I better sell it. It's the exact opposite of what you should do. You should always buy low and sell high. But day traders tend to do the opposite. So long-term investors go, I love them. I'll buy all their stocks when they're tanking. That, that's fine with me. So what, what we can look to this unrighteous mammon in that case is we can say, hey, look, I need to think long term. I need to think beyond just my day-to-day -day needs. Jesus admonished us to be wise with eternal things like the world is with temporary things. So think long term. Long term is the best investment. We need to look beyond just what is my individual need for today, but what am I investing in? Isn't that where Jesus went? He said, look, Use your mammon to have friends in heaven so when you get there, they'll welcome you. That's ultimate long-term. It don't, it don't get much long-term, much more long-term than eternity. That's, that's a long-term. So think long-term. We have to remember money fails. Money is going to fail. We've been through the crash of 2008. We watched our retirement accounts go down, our housing value plummet. We've been through it. We know money comes and money goes. So don't trust money. It's going to let you down at some point. 
It gets to a place where it just is not worth anything anymore. So instead of hanging on to the money and saying, I'm going to hang on to this because this is my security, let that go and say, I want to invest that in something that's going to be long-term and something in eternity. That's, that's where I want to put that because I know I will get an eternal return on this rather than a short-term return. So that really makes you think, well, I can't take it with me. <laughs> you know, the old, the old saw about you never see a, a hearse with a U-Haul trailer attached to it. You know, it just doesn't happen. People don't haul their goods to the grave. As a matter of fact, Solomon in Ecclesiastes says it, I think, really well. In chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, he said, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So Solomon is saying, look, I built up this massive empire, and I'm going to lay in the dirt and hand it to somebody who could be a complete knucklehead. And all that labor I did is gone. It doesn't come with me. It doesn't serve me in the afterlife. So recognize all that you have, all that you possess, all you own, in the end is going to go away. It's going to go to somebody else. Someone else will live in your house. Someone else will drive or scrap your car. And, and so you can't put your hope in those things. They, they don't abide. They don't last. They don't make it that far. And so that's, that takes us to the fourth point. So how can I love God above money? Jesus says, use your possessions, your talents that God's given you, and put in your stewardship to produce for yourself that lasting return. Invest in people so that they will be in, help, in heaven to welcome you. That will last forever. The, the, the good old U.S. greenback is going to one day be worthless, but a human soul will last for eternity. And so use that greenback while it has value to gain that human soul. That's going to be with you for eternity. That's going to last forever. So this is, this is the way that you can begin to wean your heart from putting its hope in the money that you have or the position you have or the power you have or the children you have or the house you have towards something that's going to last forever and into God is to just sit back and reflect every once in a while, <laughs> this is all garbage. It's all going to go away someday. Now, I'm not telling you to be foolish with your money. You have been, you are a steward of your money. So God has entrusted it to you, and he says, I expect you to use it well. So you, you take advantage of it. You use it for the right purposes. But what you don't do is put your hope in it and say, this is going to deliver me in the end. This is going to lead me to the promised land, this, this golden calf that I have in my hands. That, that's where you have to be careful, is use it well. You are a steward. You will give an account, but don't trust in your, in your use of it. So then how do I learn generosity? How do I get to the point where I'm a generous kind of person? I think the best, most liberating thing is you can feel free to give generously to others when you know that someone is giving generously to you, right? If someone is bestowing a lot of things on you, you can more freely give to others. If somebody gives you a, a car, you can give your old car to somebody else. And say, ah, you know, don't worry about it. It's, it's, you know, token amount or something. You can give that away. If somebody gives you a cash gift, you can then say, well, I'm not in need. I can, I can give somebody else some of this. Hey, I heard you're in need. Here. Can I take you out for lunch? Can I take you out for dinner? Can I give you this money? Because you have received, you can give. That's not pop psychology that I'm saying here. This isn't just you know, the, the latest psychological trend. 
this is biblical. And it comes from 2 Corinthians 8. In, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, hey, you guys, don't forget the promises that you made. You said you were going to give money to the poor. You were going to give money to the saints in Jerusalem who are under persecution, who are poor. And he points to the church of Macedonia. He says, look, the church of Macedonia is poor. It is really a poor church. And they're giving not only from their need, they're giving above and beyond what they're able to. So he tells that, he, he, he commends that to the Corinthian church. And then in verses 8 and 9, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. So I'm not telling you you have to give money. I'm not commanding you to give money to the church. What I'm saying is you've got an example in the Macedonian church. They, they set a standard for you. They set an example for you. You can look to that. But how do you get to that point? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, so that you, by his poverty, may become rich. That's how Paul admonishes them to follow through on giving their money to the saints, is by pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus has poured out all of these things on you. He became poor so that you could become rich. So now you have become rich, not necessarily money-wise, but rich in all the things that, that he has blessed you with. And so now you are free to give to the church the way the Macedonians are. They can't afford it, and they're doing it. You can afford it. There you go. You know that Jesus Christ has provided for you. So what he's telling them is, he's saying, Jesus has poured out all of these things on you. He has committed himself to you. He who was in heaven, surrounded by angels, worshipped at the throne of God, emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Philippians 2. He took on the form of a servant so that he could come and bestow all the blessings, all the promises that God had made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David. He could bestow them all upon you. He became poor so that you could become rich. So when you look at these things, you say, well, what am I going to do if I give this away? I, I won't have that money banked for this particular thing I was going to do. Well, you look to Jesus and you say, he's going to provide for me even if it's not that thing. He's going to provide for me even if it's not in that way that I think it is. But he has committed himself, coming down from heaven, taking on the form of a servant. He has committed himself to me and said, I am never going to leave you or forsake you. I have this tremendous flow coming into me. Surely I can release some out to others. Some of my time, some of my money, some of my property, some of my comfort, some of my cool, whatever it is. You've got so much that God is pouring into you through Jesus Christ that surely you can release some back. And the promise there is not you release it into a vacuum and you never see it again. The promise is you release it out. You say, God, you're calling me to these things. I'm releasing them into you the way that you've called me to. And the benefit is I will see people in heaven who will welcome me there, who will say, I'm here because, you, because of your generosity. You shared your life with me. You shared your possessions with me. You shared your house with me. And, and I could see the love that God has been pouring into you it exhibited. And so surely I can give that back. And so they can, they can see that and they can greet you when you get to heaven and say, come to my tent, my eternal tent, and let's hang out for a while and talk about Jesus. Let, let's see what he's done in my life since we've been apart. And, and we were talking about that in Sunday school is, is if we could totally and completely understand God in this life, 
eternity would be dead boring. We'd have nothing to talk about. There's only one subject that can fill all of eternity, that's big enough to fill all of eternity. And it's not what you did in 70, 80, 90 years on Earth. It's the God who existed before creation, during creation, after creation. That's the only thing that's big enough to fill it. So we go to these, these, these tents, these eternal tents, and we sit down with our friends, and we, we share a meal, and we talk. And what do we talk about? How huge God is. Look at what he's been doing all of these years. He did what in your life? Look at what he did in my life. That is amazing. He's the only thing that can fill eternity with that kind of conversation with friends, with other people. We've got to get the, past the notion that heaven is people in white robes playing harps floating on clouds with, with halos over their heads trying to earn wings. That was the TV notion of the 1950s. That's not the way it's going to be. It's going to be much more fun. I would get bored with harps after real quick, you know, and I look terrible in a dress, so I'm not looking forward to that. But to look forward to a heaven where we're exploring and explaining all that God's done, all that generosity that he's poured into us, and how did we pour it out? And look at how he multiplied it. Look how he increased it. So that's why he admonishes us. Look to the unrighteous servant. Look how wise he was. He said, I'm fixing to lose it all. I'm, the master's going to fire me. I can't get a job. I'm going to lose it all. I, in other words, I can't hang on to what I've been given. So while I have it, I'm going to use it so that I can set myself up in the long term. That's why we get an unrighteous servant. That's why Jesus points to him and says, look how shrewd they are with each other. Shouldn't you be that shrewd with your money? All that you have does not belong to you. That's why Jesus says, if, if you're faithful with that which is another's, um, who will give you, if you're not faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So God is, has invested in you all of the things that you have, and he says, be faithful with them. They're not yours, by the way. They're mine, but I'm putting them into your hands. Now you go be faithful with them. And then when you get to heaven, you'll be faithful with what you receive that's yours for eternity, forever, for real. And in the end, he reminds us, you cannot serve God and money. It is impossible to serve God and money. You will either love one master and hate the other or hate one and love the other. It's, you've got to pick one. So if you want the money portion, if you want the possessions, the position, the authority, the, the comfort now, understand it will fail you. You're a day trader. You're a short-term investor. Instead... Invest in what God has called you to do. Use those things that he's given you, but put your hope in him. Your hope set on God, not money. And what that does is if you've been holding on to your position, your, your, your place and everything with two hands very tightly closed, when you begin to trust God and say, well, I want to do what he wants me to do, you'll find your hands opening. You'll find your, your generosity increasing. Not out of duty, like Paul told the Corinthians. I, I'm not telling you you have to do this. I'm telling you, I want you to want to do this because you see what the investment is. And then the cool thing with the Corinthian example is he points to another church and he says, other saints are doing this. Poorer people than you, people that are poorer than you are doing it. Can't, can you see how they can trust? He's not doing it to, to make them ashamed and say, oh, they're so much better than you. They're better Christians. I bet they're going to get a better tent in heaven. What he says is, look at how God has done that in the, in the Macedonians who don't have nearly as much as you rich Corinthians. 
If God can provide for those Macedonians, surely he can provide for you too. And so what Paul is trying to admonish us, what Jesus is trying to admonish us is to a generosity that springs from a heart that recognizes Jesus is overflowing to us. Jesus is trusting us with more and more. And the ultimate point of all of this is people are more important than your money. People are more important than your comfort. People will last forever. All of those other things will fade. You cannot serve God and money. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I confess um, before my brothers and sisters in Christ to a certain degree of greed. Um, I like to have a little extra cash. I like to spend it on myself. Um, I get a little cagey looking at giving it to other people sometimes. And Lord, I confess that that is because I don't recognize, I don't believe, I don't trust the truth that you have left heaven to come to earth to pour out the blessings of all of God's promises on me. And Lord, I, I, I don't for a second believe I'm alone in this room. I think we all to some degree do that. Lord Jesus, would you increase our trust in you? I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would remind us regularly of the promises that God is giving us. And here, as Paul says, that in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. That you have committed yourself to give to us. And Lord, I pray that that would turn us into genuinely generous people from the heart. Lord, this is a miraculous work. It's a power of the Spirit. It is the, the application of the truth of who Jesus is in our lives that will bring us to that point. And I pray that you accomplish that. That as we read the scriptures and hear the promises and see your faithfulness over and over and over again throughout all of the word, Lord, I pray that that would increase our trust of you, that we would put our hope in you. Lord, we pray that we would not serve mammon, but you. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.